0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll check out their website and give them a call. It's johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about raising the question, has the Supreme Court of the United States subverted the Constitution? Certainly there's evidence uh, since the Second World War that that's happened. Also, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, will be joining us as well. It is February the 23rd, and on this day in 1945, during the Bloody Battle of Iwo Jima, U.S. Marines from the 3rd Platoon, platoon, E. Company, 2nd Battalion, 28th Regiment of the 5th Division, taking the crest of Mount Suribachi the island's highest peak and most strategic position, to raise the U.S. flag. Marine photographer Lewis Lowry, who was one of them and with them, recorded the event. Americans fighting for control of Surabachi's slopes cheered the raising of the flag, and several hours later, more Marines headed up the crest with a larger flag. Joe Rosenthal, a photographer with the Associated Press, met them along the way and recorded the raising of the second flag along with Marine Still photographer and motion pic- picture cameron. Cameraman Rosenthal took three photographs atop Suribachi. The first, which showed five Marines and one Navy corpsman uh, struggling to hoist this heavy flagpole, became the most reproduced photograph in history and won him a Pulitzer Prize. The accompanying motion picture uh, footage attests to the fact that the picture was not posed of the other two photographs. The second was similar to the first but less affecting, and the third was a group picture of about 18 Marines smiling and waving at the camera. Many of these men, including the three of the Marines uh, seen raising the flag in the famous Rosenthal photo, were killed before the conclusion of the Battle of Iwo Jima in late March. In early 1945, U.S. military command sought to gain control of the island of Iwo Jima in advance of the projected aerial campaign against the Japanese home islands. Iwo Jima, a tiny volcanic island located in the Pacific about 700 miles southeast of Japan, was to be a base for fighter aircraft and an emergency landing site for bombers. On February 19, 1945, after three days of heavy naval and aerial bombardment, the first wave of U.S. Marines stormed into Iwo Jima's inhospitable shores. The Japanese garrison on the island numbered 22,000 heavily entrenched men, their commander, uh, had been expecting an Allied invasion for months and used the time wisely to construct an intricate and a deadly system of underground tunnels, fortifications, and artillery that withstood the aerial bombardment. Uh, by the evening of the first day, despite incessant mortar fire, 30,000 U.S. Marines commanded by uh, General Holland Smith managed to establish solid Beachhead. During the next few days, the Marines advanced inch by inch under heavy fire from Japanese and artillery, suffering suicidal charges from the Japanese infantry. Many of the Japanese defenders were never seen and remained underground, manning artillery until they were blown apart by a grenade or a rocket, or incinerated by a flamethrower. While Japanese kamikaze fighters slammed the Allied uh, naval fleet around Iwo Jima. The Marines on the island continued their bloody advance across the island, responding to Kuribachi's lethal defenses with remarkable endurance. On February the 23rd, the crest of 550 foot Mount Suribachi was taken, and the next day, the slopes of the extinct volcano were secured. By March 3rd, U.S. forces controlled all three airfields on the island, and on March 26th, the last Japanese defenders of the Iwo Jima were wiped out. Only 200 of the original 22,000 Japanese defenders were captured alive. More than 6,000 Americans died taking Iwo Jima, and some 17,000 were wounded. That photograph uh, ended up getting the Pulitzer Prize. Also, the statue of raising the flag of Iwo Jima uh, actually stands near Columbia Island Marina near uh, Washington, right in Washington D.C. Actually, it's famous uh, statue, well worth seeing. By the way, if you get there, President Joe Biden addressed the nation and the world on Tuesday, explaining the U.S. position with regard to Ukraine and Russia's potential invasion of the European nation. Biden said that he was. Uh, what was seen this week with Russia recognized the independence of two Ukrainian states is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's sticking by that. As a result, Biden said, I'm going to be, begin to impose sanctions, which he said are a response by far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with the invasion, we are uh, stand prepared to go further as with sanctions, he said. He said the Russian actions were a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response in the international community. I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday, he said. They have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners who will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia Russia escalates. These include banking sanctions on two Russian banks, and their military bank, Biden said. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the U.S. and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets, on European market markers either. Starting tomorrow and continuing into the days ahead, Biden said. These include the imposition of sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. Uh, the Kremlin policies should... Uh, Share the pain as well, he said. He also said that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will not, as promised, will not move forward. As Russia contemplates its next move, Biden said, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper response if it continues its aggression and uh, additional sanctions. He said the U.S. will not continue to provide material aid to the Ukraine to defend itself. It said it will do that. I would defend NATO with, uh, were Russia to move into NATO territory, but would not bring troops into the ground into Ukraine. So uh, I want to limit the pain at the Mar- of the American people are feeling at the gas swamp, he said. Biden went on to say that there's no question that Russia is the aggressor. Uh, we're clear eyed about the challenge we're facing. Nonetheless, there's still time to avert the worst case scenario that will bring untold suffering to millions of people if they move, as suggested. He said in the U.S. and her allies and partners remain open to diplomacy. He left the room without taking any questions. Pretty <clears throat> undramatic speech and uh, some, somewhat underwhelming uh, from the President of the United States. Don't know why I didn't take questions. Certainly there was a lot of them. Well, we'll see what, uh, how while Russia behaves. Apparently they are posturing right now to invade Ukraine. Uh, we'll see. So let freedom roll is the slogan of the uh, the People's Convoy set to depart today from Al-Adento, uh, uh, excuse me, Adelanto, California, on its way to Washington, D.C., to protest federal coronavirus mandates and call for an end to President Joe Biden's emergency declaration. It's about bringing this country together and uniting people right now, Summers uh, continued. This is uh, one of the founders. It's not necessary when you go on... When you've gotten the shot, it's the freedom to choose and our freedom of choice. I mean, there's a lot of people that have gotten the vax that are on board with this as far as losing our freedom to choose whether we want to get the vaccination. Our freedoms are being stripped from us. Convoy organizers Summers and Steele both felt this is America's last chance to defend itself before the country descends into a tyranny, much like what we've seen in Canada, most recently, and of course, Australia. If we don't protest... We're going to lose our country forever, Steele said. For us to have allowed this to go on uh, this time is a shame on us. This is our time to take back our country and and, uh, can get things right and get things back to normal and send a very loud and large message to the government. You work for us. They seem to have forgotten that. They seem to think that this is a dictatorship that they rule. The majority of people are aligned with us, she continued. The left seems to think that they've got the majority. They don't. They've got the largest microphones, they've got Hollywood, they've got mainstream media, and they've got professors and teachers. But 80% of the country is middle of the road. 80% of the country is on board with getting back to normalcy and not having any of this nonsense going on. To that end, the convoy's primary demand is that the declaration of national emergency concerning coronavirus be ended rescinded at all the extra and the supposedly temporary emergency powers given to the executive branch. Along with that, they demand that the end to the mask and vaccine mandates and a restoration to the freedom to choose. And by their demands go further, calling for accountability in the form of bipartisan congressional hearings on response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The convoys partnered with multiple groups, including Ryan Cole, one of the doctors uh f- Uh, who've uh, been sanctioned by this COVID nonsense. Also, Steele said he worked with Robert Malone, Peter McCulloch, and Peter Corey. Pierre Corey, these doctors backed us immediately for freedom, and so did Josh Yoder of the U.S. Freedom Flyers, who represents, by the way, 35,000 pilots. So they're on their way. It's got me a little bit concerned because right now, of course, they put up a fence around the Capitol again, and they're uh, preparing the National Guard to confront the truckers. So it looks like uh, the uh, Congress and the Democrat Party are trying to make this look like another January 6th event, sadly, because this is a peaceful protest. They've got attorneys. They've got a lot of people involved in this. They want it to go right for everybody. They want it simply to have their voices heard. It's going to be uh, thousands of trucks in Washington, D.C., hopefully— uh, the Democrats won't turn it into another circus. Well, according to an Emerson poll, the GOP has a nine-point generic lead going into the midterm congressional races, but the real problem for Democrats and Biden is enthusiasm, which pretends an even wider gap at the ballot box. The majority, 73% of registered voters report being very motivated to vote in the 2022 midterm elections. Republican voters express higher levels of motivation, 79% say they don't uh, they're very motivated to vote compared to 65% of Democrat voters. Younger voters are less motivated to vote, only 57% of between the ages of 18 and 29, but 84% of voters over 50 say they are very motivated to, to vote. Voters were asked uh, which congressional candidate on the ballot they were most likely to vote for, and uh, the half of the voters, 50%, said they planned to vote for a Republican, while 41% said they planned to vote for a Democrat candidate. 9% are undecided and don't know what the heck's going on. This is similar to November national poll, which had Republican uh, candidates nationwide, leading Democrats 49 to 42%. So the, the margin has actually grown. There's a 14% Point gap on enthusiasm overall for the midterms in favor of the Republicans. That's really important. By the way, Hispanic voters uh, have become hardly disapproving of Biden. Hardly uh, disapproving of by Without Democrats, are looking at the electoral nightmare just in 22, 22, but also beyond. Hispanic voters are more critical of Biden's job performance. Only 35% approve, while 56% disapprove. Can you imagine? That looks like the uh, Hispanic vote is turning on Biden. And while voter, white voters are more favorable of Biden's job performance, 41% approve and 51% disapprove, black voters are the most favorable of Biden's job performance, 66% approve, while 28% disapprove. And with the Democrat Party, 73% approve of the job Biden is doing as a president, while 19% disapprove, among Republicans, 71% disapprove, while 22% approve. Independents also generically and generally disapprove of Biden's job performance. 27% approve, 63% disapprove. Really underwater. Hispanic uh, groups for Democrat nominees dropped from 71% in 2012 to 66% in 2016 and 59% in 2020. Democrats, two pollsters right, must consider the possibility that Hispanics will turn out to be the Italians of the 21st century. Family oriented, religious, patriotic, striving to succeed in their adopted country and supportive of public policies that expand economic opportunity. That doesn't sound like the Democrat uh, platform. So interesting. Things can change, though, between now and November. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rocking good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly staff has been part of Lulubee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulubee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulubee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulubees.com and stop by Lulubee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lullaby's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Forty-five,
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hearing that commercial from Lulabee's Diner reminds me they've got great outdoor seating. In fact, they've redone the entire Green Tree Shopping Center. And I hope you'll stop by and enjoy breakfast or lunch at Lulabee's Diner, right there in the Green Tree uh, Shopping Center. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob's an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining.
3: Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
3: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to Private Property, Free Markets, Securing Individual Rights, and Limited Government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G, on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. Now, uh, we've seen a lot of changes in the United States of America. When you read the Constitution and you take a look at what's going on in this country, ask yourself, (laughs) what is going on? And, of course, the Supreme Court has had a lot to do with that, so I thought we might talk about some of the things that are going on, including... Let's start off with taxing power. Uh, the Chief Justice, uh, Justice Roberts, held that Obamacare's penalty for not buying health insurance was really a tax. On that basis, the Supreme Court said that Obamacare is constitutional. A lot of us were surprised. What's the constitutional basis for the taxing power?
3: Yeah, the case was NFIB versus Sebelius, the Obamacare case. And the administration had said that Obamacare's mandate to purchase health insurance was a regulation of interstate commerce. The court said, no, it's not. But the court didn't go any further to invalidate Obamacare. Instead, Chief Justice Roberts conjured up this new justification, and that is that the mandate to purchase health insurance uh, is part of the power to lay and collect taxes to provide for the general welfare. So this goes back to the New Deal era. (laughs) The Supreme Court in a case called Helvering v. Davis upheld the Social Security Act and established that taxes can be imposed for just about any purpose that allegedly serves the general welfare. And now, presumably, that includes subsidizing insurance companies so they can afford to cover the pre existing conditions that were required under Obamacare. And so, you know, you have to think like a judge. The, the Helvering case wasn't about Social Security is a good idea or whether it's actuarially sound. The issue was where in the Constitution is the federal government authorized to impose a retirement system? And the proponents pointed to this taxing power, and they cited the battle between Hamilton and Madison. Hamilton's view was that the power to tax to provide for the general welfare was an extra power over and above Congress's other powers. Madison's view was that can't be, because everything can be characterized as providing for the general welfare, so we'd have effectively unlimited government. It would eviscerate the notion of limited government powers. And then Madison went a step further. He said not only is the general welfare clause not an extra power, it's a restriction on Congress's other powers. And Madison argued that in carrying out Congress's powers, the ones that were enumerated, Congress had to do so in a manner that promoted the general welfare, not the welfare of what Madison then called factions and what we today call the special interests. Mm. The Supreme Court, you know, in a nutshell said Hamilton Hamilton wins, Madison loses, and the the federal government used the taxing power and now compels everybody to provide for their own retirement and to purchase health insurance uh, if they don't already have it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do I remember that the uh, Obama administration didn't rely on the taxing powers, one of the arguments, in front of the Supreme Court?
3: That's right. They relied on the Commerce Clause, but the Supreme Court, on its own, came up with this alternative (coughs) argument that held the day.
1: Unbelievable. So uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, uh, did he effectively say that the taxing power is effectively unlimited?
3: Well, you know, only one of the federal courts that relied on Obamacare embraced this taxing power logic. And even the administration uh, dismissed the claim and gave it a little attention in its, uh, in its uh, briefs. The purpose of a tax is to generate revenue. The insurance requirement existed solely to coerce people into buying policies. Yeah. So if the mandate worked perfectly, it wouldn't raise any ma- revenue. It would simply require that you go out and buy health insurance. And Congress, when they wrote the law, they had written tax in an earlier version, and then they changed the word to penalty in the later version. Tax is used elsewhere in the bill to describe other sources of revenue. So, you know, Congress knew how to say tax when it meant tax. Right. And it knew how to say penalty when it meant penalty. And as we mentioned, it was the Commerce Clause that the administration was relying upon. Uh, Obama repeatedly called the assessment a penalty, not a tax, mostly because he was worried about being accused of raising taxes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, essentially, Roberts concluded that there is no mandate to buy health insurance. There's just a tax that offers us an option. Either you can pay the Insurance, or you can buy the insurance or you can pay the tax. And so no one, said Roberts, is really forced to buy since they have the option of paying the tax. And then he went a step further. He said, you know, if the tax were a lot larger, then it would really be coercive. And at that point, you wouldn't have an, an option. But the Obamacare tax wasn't large enough. So the taxing power has a built in limit. It's just that Obamacare's tax was too small to cross uh, that limit. Hmm. The limits, you know, if if you're going to have limits, I'd rather have them under the taxing power than under the commerce clause because taxes are politically toxic, and that limits their use. And the taxing power imposes monetary burdens when you do something wrong, such as not buying insurance, if this was upheld under the commerce power. You could go to prison for, for doing something wrong, such as happens when you smoke marijuana, for example.
1: Well, not anymore, of course. But <laughs> so
3: did. Well, you... under federal law, still that's the rule.
1: That's the law. So, uh, out of curiosity, let's talk about the Commerce Clause. So, uh, wasn't that the original claim of the administration, of the Obama administration, under Obamacare, that the uh, regulations should be upheld because of interstate commerce?
3: Yeah, federal mandate to buy a private product was unprecedented and untested in the courts. It was first proposed by uh, Hillary Clinton back in 1994. And at that time, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, wrote, and this is a quote, the government has never required people to buy any good or service as a condition of lawful residence in the United States. And that that's precisely, however, what Obamacare is now doing. Um, where in the Constitution does it say that Congress... Uh, can do that, according to the administration, the answer was the Commerce Clause, the power to regulate interstate commerce. As we now know, that's not what the court decided.
1: Wow. So has the court said, what has the court said about regulating under the a Commerce Clause, and how did Obamacare fit into the picture?
3: Well, to better understand the Commerce Clause, you've got to define two, two key terms. Uh, first, commerce. Commerce is the exchange of products basically buying and selling? Mm -hmm. And second, what is an economic act that may affect commerce? Now, that's much broader than just buying and selling. It also includes things like farming and mining and manufacturing and distributing and consuming. So those are economic acts that affect commerce, but they're not buying and selling in itself. So if you think it's self-evident that the commerce power extends only to activities involving commerce, that is, buying and selling, then you haven't been following the Supreme Court uh, over the past seven or eight decades. So back in 1942, we had this infamous case of Wickard v. Filburn that we've talked about before, and that laid the background for expanding the commerce clause beyond regulating commerce to regulating all of these economic acts that could have an effect on commerce. You know, Philburn grew wheat primarily for consumption by his family and his farm animals. And during the 1930s, to boost depressed prices of agricultural products,
1: the Roosevelt
3: administration decided to cut wheat production. And accordingly, the federal government ordered Philburn to grow fewer bushels. And when Philburn asked the officials for their constitutional authority, the government cited this power huh. uh, to regulate interstate commerce. Philburn's you know, you know, predictable response was, look, the farm is within one state and I'm not buying uh, and selling any of these crops. I'm using them for my farm animals and I'm growing them myself. No matter, said the uh, Supreme Court, uh, by growing his own wheat, he avoided buying. And if he hadn't eaten what he grew, he would have been able to sell what was left over. So, by, you know, by growing and eating and not buying and selling, he had an effect on the supply and demand for wheat. And when you consider that, in the aggregate, along with the crops of other farmers who were doing the same thing, undoubtedly there was some impact on interstate commerce, and that opened the floodgates. Now we have the, you know, the regulatory state uh, regulating anything and everything
1: under yeah. the commerce clause. You just can't make this stuff up, Bob. Bob <laughs> yeah. the, the chairman of the Cato Institute, cato.org, C-A-T-O org is the website bob thank you so much for joining us here on the show
3: always a pleasure good to be with you
1: bob. thank you bob all right coming up andrew Joppa, professor and author of josephus of oz we're going to do that and more right here in the bob Harden show on the bob Harden broadcasting network
0: stay tuned for more of the bob Harden show here on the bob Harden broadcasting network Bob
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good morning, Bob.
1: Good morning, Andy. So uh, looking forward to today's conversation. There's so much going on around the world. I just kind of open it up to you and... Uh, what's top of mind for you?
2: Well, I'll start out with saying that Ukraine is obviously on everybody's mind and ours and mine. Uh, It's not the only thing that should be discussed. And so I'll I'll get to that certainly. But let let me hit a few other issues. First, the as I see it, the good news of the day. And the good news is the recent polling results in the African-American community as it pertains to the Biden administration. uh, At the start of his administration, he had a 92% popularity rating. And right now in most recent polls, it's down to 65% or 57%, depending upon the poll. But all the polls are showing a precipitous decline in his popularity. If those numbers hold and reflect in the voting booth in, uh, in November, I think it'll be uh, presuming uh, presuming legal elections. That's always a presumption I have to make. Uh, I think there'll be a tremendous landslide in both the House and the Senate uh, in the 2022 midterm. So uh, let's let's hope those numbers hold. I, I have a, a feeling they might. Uh, it's built primarily as best the polling uh, people can determine on two factors. Uh, the increasing level of inflation, and the government's uh, draconian and restrictions in terms of COVID. So the African-American community has reacted very strongly to both of those, uh, and it's being reflected in the popularity of the Biden administration, Bob.
1: And I think that that's the same with the Hispanic community as well. I mean, literally, the, the president is underwater, uh, no matter what the issue, that, it, uh, that in, it, even in foreign affairs when he's trying to uh, do some saber-rattling here with Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is no area where Biden, uh, Biden is able to generate, even if they agree with the general issue that's being uh, directed, by the administration, I think almost everyone finds that biden 's role in it is is negative, so uh, whether that reflects itself in the in the voting booth uh, well, that waits to be seen uh, and I always hate to include the the concept of of legal elections, but i I think the concept cannot be ignored and I, I hope the Republicans are are doing their due diligence as, it, uh, as we approach those midterms i I think that will be the critical factor in determining the outcome of those elections. Another piece of good news, and I'm not quite sure if it's good news, but I think finally um, I can, and I think most Americans can begin to identify exactly what American exceptionalism is. Certainly we've all heard the term, and I think we've all supported the concept of American exceptionalism. I think we're finally able to see, let let me keep it personal, at least I'm finally able to see exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. America is the only country in the world that that believes and, and understands that the rights of the individual do not come from government. The government did not give those rights and the government therefore cannot take away those rights. In every other country of the world, rights are seen as the derivative of government's allowance. The government gives you the rights and by definition, Therefore, can take those rights away, so that American exceptionalism I think is the defining element of the uh, of the quality of America. I think it is what built america uh, and unfortunately you know, the downside of that good news is I think that particular exceptionalism issue is under serious assault uh, in America certainly we've seen it on under dramatic assault in Canada now Canada. Uh, we've always seen as being uh, akin to America, sort of our, our northern brother. I think it is showing itself to be entirely not that. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing a nation that has uh, draconian governmental interventions, uh, the uh, imposition of emergency powers uh, that Trudeau, Trudeau has invoked. And I think we can see even in the direct comparison of the United States uh, and Canada at this exact moment, Maybe that moment won't hold. I think we can see American exceptionalism uh, as it operates at this point, Bob.
1: Uh, Well, I I certainly hope you're right. I I, I see right now this uh, truckers uh, freedom uh, convoy that's starting out in California and coming to Washington, D.C. I see, uh, first of all, the emergency powers have been continued by the Biden administration for COVID-19 for whatever reason. Uh, second of all, he's alerted the National Guard to be prepared to come in and support. In other words, I, what I'm concerned about is I see the the his posturing of the Democrat Party right now is to try and turn this into another January sixth event to somehow uh, put down the truckers, do what they did in Canada, and to continue and evoke the emergency powers. It's got me very concerned.
2: Uh, I, I have no doubt those are those are really ominous concerns as far as I, I see it. I. I think that Biden is, uh, is not ignoring uh, what Trudeau was doing. And it's not just Trudeau's actions um, without the support of the Canadian people. The Canadian people are, I think the last number I heard, there's a 72 percent favorability rating for Trudeau and his actions. Hmm. So these are not just actions of a of an unpopular government. These are actions widely supported by the Canadian people. Hmm. Uh, We'll have to wait and see exactly if if what you're suggesting comes to to pass in America, uh, comparable draconian impositions. We'll have to wait to see how the American people respond. Will we respond, as I hope we will as Americans, uh, regarding individual freedom as the most important uh, ingredient in a free society, or we will yield to the draconian government as the Canadians did? And and I think that uh, I'd like to feel that I know the answer to that, Bob, uh, I do not know the answer to it at this point.
1: So interesting. Well, uh, you know, again, uh, we'll just hope for the very best on this, but it, it seems to me that, that we have now the government against the people. That's the way it's kind of framed, as opposed to, as you've initially described, it should be the government for the people, created by the people, and therefore uh, looking for power from the people.
2: Yeah, there's something I'd like to add to this. It's uh, it's a thought that I just was uh, was going through the other day, and I'm I've never believed that the government could, in fact, confiscate uh, weapons from Americans. I thought the door-to-door process of police knocking on doors and demanding the citizens yield their weapons to the government, I thought that was an impossible model. I could not believe that would ever happen. Hmm. However, as I look at what's happening in Canada and the control that can be exercised by a government, by destroying the person's financial life, by destroying their banks, uh, bank records, by destroying their uh, their ability to work. Uh, that has worked quite successfully for, for Canada. Um, certainly again, Biden may be learning from this and I, I don't want to project something that is not in place at this point. It's a pure hypothetical, right. but I could see something like that being imposed as a methodology to con- to confiscate weaponry, Bob, also.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> these are the times that test man's souls, right? This is the sunshine patriots. We have to be vigilant right now. Now this trucker's uh, a protest that's uh, coming from California very well organized, very well financed. They have attorneys on board. They've got all kinds of counsel, uh, supported by good people. Uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm hopeful that they've, uh, they'll use a strategy that uh, will be peaceful. I know they will. My concern is that the the administration will try to make make them look like quote-unquote, Nazis, like... Uh, quote, well, as, unquote, as, as Trudeau
2: did in Canada. They yeah. try to turn these people into racists and white supremacists yes. and... Uh... Uh, with with just it just uh, absolutely no reason behind it. Perhaps there was a uh, inappropriate flag or something that showed up someplace, but uh, that has been a typical approach of the uh, the Biden administration to take a very minimal uh, information and expand it to be a total definition of, of. Certainly, they did that exactly with Trump. And I think you're right, Bob. I think we will probably see that with the American truckers. That American trucker. Uh, uh, Cavalcade will probably be a an acid test of the quality of of America. Uh, will that succeed in producing some accommodation, at least a a meeting with the truckers to hear their laments, or will, as with Trudeau, will they just uh, uh, dig in their heels and uh, and impose uh, police state actions against these truckers? So you know, it, it waits to be seen, and I'm I'm not optimistic. Um, I, I don't want to use up all my time at this point, but I would like to mention the CDC's withholding uh, a vast amounts of information oh. from the American public. Uh, I think that's a very serious situation. It wasn't just a, uh, an omission of, of error. Uh, it was an omission with intent they omitted almost all of the information as it pertains to the impact of boosters uh, on the 18 to 60, not the 1864, the 18 to 49 uh, demographic. Uh, I believe for one reason for sure, and that's the, the ineffectiveness of the booster. Uh, and I, I'll add this in as a potential. I, I have no documentation. But as we talked about last week, the death rate, among the 18 to 64 year, year age group has gone up precipitously yep. and it correlates. It may not be cause and effect, but it certainly correlates with the advent of the vaccines. So I have a, a, a suspicion, unproven suspicion, that the, the information coming into the CDC for the 18 to 49 uh, demographic also tends to document the, the, the incredible uh, increase, rapid increase in a death rate for that uh, approximately same age group. So that's, to me, that's a great concern at this point.
1: I, I totally agree with you, Andy, and, and of course, uh, the CDC as well. We didn't want the information. We didn't. Basically, the explanation was we, we didn't think the American people could handle the truth. That's basically their their approach to this, which is really concerning. Of all the things they could say... Uh, you'd think that we we have confidence that the American people could make good decisions given the truth. They don't think that. They don't have a high regard, a regard for American intelligence and for judgment.
2: Well, I think uh, it is their high regard for Americans in the sense that uh, Americans can at this point begin to penetrate the, uh, the darkness of the, of the distortions that they've used over the past year and a half, Bob. Uh, and I think they're they're terrified that information going out to them right now will document exactly what many Americans have been fearing uh, over the past year and a half. So uh, I think it's not a concern with the lack of intelligence of Americans. I think their concern is with the, uh, the intelligence of Americans and ultimately their, their imposition of that intelligence on the medical community and the government of America, Bob.
1: Andy, I want to continue the conversation. I want our uh, listeners to have an opportunity to hear from our our sponsors who wouldn't be able to do this without them. So, uh, can you stick around? So, if I
2: complain, you'll still do it. Uh, Yeah,
1: absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be here. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: show and now here's your host bob hardin
1: thanks so much for joining us here on the show it's brought to you in part by golf shore playhouse bringing you professional new york style theater at its very best you can get tickets now visit the website org. we continue the conversation with andy Joppa, professor and author of josepha savaz again andy thank you so much for joining us
2: good to be with you bob
1: andy let's pick up on ukraine i mean right now there's so much going on that is really pivotal, pivotal, pivotal in terms of uh, the integrity of the United States, the Constitution, and so forth. And this is this is one of those things. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I, I tend to hold, I, I would describe them as a lot of minority positions on on the Ukraine russian issue. And um, certainly, I'm not an apologist for uh, for Putin or Russia. Uh, But I do hold some positions that are not being generally espoused in in America. Uh, First of all, my major concern is the uh, this use of cyber warfare within the discussions between Russia and America. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the February 15th presentation by Biden, he uh, he discussed cyber warfare Uh, that was followed by uh, a response from uh, Russia also discussing cyber warfare. Uh, And I think that uh, uh, cyber warfare tends to have a less dramatic connotation than uh, than military direct military conflict. Yet Uh, if cyber warfare ever occurred and our our, various uh, technological infrastructures were shut down, uh, it would be the most devastating thing to ever hit this country. So uh, I think we always have to keep in mind that cyber warfare uh, is an easily invoked potential that Russia certainly uh, certainly could invoke, and certainly in response, we could invoke. so that, that concept uh, really really bothers me as something that's been put on the table. It bothers me as much as if nuclear weapons had been put on the table because right. certainly cyber warfare would be easily as damaging as, as nuclear weapons Bob.
1: I totally agree. Uh, you know, and, and what's really concerning is the fact that it doesn't take a military buildup, and it does. It's not very expensive. The fact of the matter is, and I, I'm being a little facetious, but a eleven-year-old kid could pretty much do it better than most adults in terms of uh, creating the havoc. I mean, to de- destroy uh, our inf- our grid, our energy grid. I mean, that that would put us. That would uh, cause massive starvation in the United States.
2: Yeah, and it's it's uh, to the largest extent it's it's untraceable to the source. Uh, certainly, we can ascribe source, but it, in reality, it is untraceable. So it's very hard to lay uh, lay absolute guilt at anyone's doorstep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm just going to create a total hypothetical, just for your audience purpose. I'm making something up. Uh, for example, China could invoke a a cyber warfare asymmetric attack on the United States. And lay the fault at the doorstep of Russia right now. Certainly, the American public, the American government, the American media uh, would buy into that immediately, since Russia has been has been totally demonized at this point. Oh. Again, just that was a hypothetical. Great all, point. All I'm suggesting is cyber warfare sets up. All kinds of strange, asymmetric concepts uh, as it pertains to the current war powers, Bob.
1: That is such an interesting hypothetical. Thank you for that, Andy. So we'll watch for that. So uh, right now, the Ukraine is the the, Russia is saying, "Well, these are independent states right now. We're sending our troops in there to quote-unquote keep the peace." Uh, So, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, Putin's aggression right now?
2: Well, first of all, any any place that we send Kamala Harris as our point man like (laughs) Harris in in Munich I I think that somehow reflects that we don't take this thing as seriously as we we seem to be stating great you you just don't send Harris in on that job right Uh, in terms of uh, how I see the circumstance between Russia and Ukraine uh, first if I was to discuss it from the position of Russia from Putin Putin and Russia sees Ukraine as historically Russia uh, right. In in the in the writings, uh, the historical writings of that of that area, uh, Kiev is seen as the mother of Russia. Right. So, to the largest extent, we don't see it this way, and maybe it isn't this way. But I know Russia sees that this is an internecine, internecine war. This is a war in the family, a family of Russians, essentially, as as they would see it. So, they don't see themselves as invading or attacking a foreign country. They see themselves as reclaiming legitimate territory of, uh, of contiguous Russia. Now that certainly is debatable and uh, I'm guessing could be rejected easily, but that is a perception I believe uh, that, that Russia Russia holds. Uh, right now we, we keep, or many at least, not we, but many uh, are relating what's going on to the uh, invasion of the Sudetenland by Hitler. Uh, and uh, they're suggesting that this is very similar to that. I would more equate what's going on right now to the the actions that preceded World War I, not World War II. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is a, is a, is a lot of nations that are uh, that are beating the drums of war. Uh, I think they're putting a lot at risk uh, beyond the, uh, the the issue of Ukraine, per se. I think we're putting world peace at risk in a very as far as I see it, Bob, a very casual manner. Uh, Having watched uh, Russia and Putin be demonized since 2015, and again, I'm not apologizing for Putin. This is not, this is not a good man. This is not a man to be trusted. But I think also Putin sees the West legitimately as not to be trusted. I think the history of the West historically with Russia, uh, Russia has been invaded. Russia has not been the invader. Uh, if we look at uh, France back in the in the 19th century, if we look at Germany in the in the 20th century, now Russia's uh, Russia's and the USR's aggressive actions uh, and the holding of Eastern Europe territories was an end result of their movement against the uh, the, uh, the the Wehrmacht uh, at the end of World War II. I'm not apologizing in any way for the horrors that the USSR imposed on, on, on Europe. But again, it was not per se an invasion. So Europe has, in fact, historically, continuously threatened Russia and mm-hmm. acted on that. And I think Putin, being a, a master of Russian history, understands that Russia is under, uh, under constant threat from the West. And I, sees the, I think he sees this in a, a much larger model than the way we're experiencing in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I, I guess that would be a, a general comprehensive overview as far as I see it. Yeah. This is an internecine warfare, uh, Russia and Ukraine. I, and I also, in, a, in an essay I published the other day, I, I asked the question, Bob, where is Ukraine's military? Polenski at the end of 2021 said clearly when being interviewed that the Ukraine military could easily withstand any uh, assault, any intervention from outside. And yet, as we look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, I don't believe I've heard the invocation of the Ukraine military as a potential uh, source of resistance. The first words that typically come out of everyone's mouth is, what is the U.S. going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, To me, the first question should be, what is Ukraine going to do? And I haven't heard that question asked or answered.
1: That is a great point, Andy. Of course, it also raises the question about the motivation of all this and our posturing on this. And it it has to do with, I think, the lack of popularity where we started about— what's going on with, this, with the Biden administration. And clearly, he's losing traction. Uh, the candidates are starting to distance themselves from Biden and the administration going into the 2022 midterm elections. Is this perhaps being used as a way to right the ship and somehow, some way, garner political support? Unfortunately, I, I consider it a possibility.
2: I, I think it is um, possibility does not give it any probability. I think there is a a probability of of what you just said be being true. I think this uh, this event will be milked uh, uh, as much as they can to gain. Uh, to gain support, very few uh, people in a nation uh, turn against their existing government during times of war, mm-hmm. and I think there is a a hope. I don't know whether it'll be fulfilled that the United States people going into the twenty twenty two midterms will be of of the same nature. So I I, I think there is a a strong potential of uh, of that coming to pass. And I also don't think it can be ignored uh, the 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 ongoing. Uh, long-term involvement of Biden and his family in terms of Ukraine politics and the corruption that dominates uh, right. Ukraine uh, even even today. Uh, Ukraine is one of the most corrupt nations in the world uh, to even consider that it should be allowed into NATO and, and become, therefore, a, a contiguous threat with Russia. And Russia is supposed to ignore that, a corrupt nation sitting on their border and by some uh, explanations a nation that is dominated by neo-nazi philosophy i'm not documenting that i'm just saying that position has been made for russia to ignore Mm
1: -hmm. that nation
2: sitting on their border uh with a gun pointed out them representing uh the west aggression towards russia I just don't see how Putin can ever accept that to happen.
1: No, I I would agree with that, and of course it, it this exists uh, in in the context of a lot of other things that are going on in the world, like China's hovering over Taiwan right now. Uh, this is uh this is going to have implications for that situation as well.
2: Well, you you know you suggested is this being used as a methodology to. Uh, strengthen the democrats into the 2022 midterms uh, i think it may also be be used to uh to take the conversation away from china yeah. now i'm not suggesting that russia does not offer some degree of of threat but not to the west i, I don't this this nonsense that russia is going to immediately once they they take ukraine invade poland uh, the Baltic countries and so forth. I think, well, the Baltic countries, perhaps, I can't ignore that, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not gonna be moving into into NATO uh, NATO alliance countries at this point, but that's not true of China. I think the greatest threat right now we have to, uh, the globalized peace process will be uh, the, the unrestricted actions of China. And by the way, getting back to a concept we touched on before, and you and I have talked about in our past conversations, uh, the absolute commitment to asymmetric warfare of the Chinese government, of the CCP. Uh, so I think we're looking at a, a circumstance where, where China has fallen into the background. I think that might be done with intent at this point. And if so, it's being done very successfully. China is almost off the table right now, Bob.
1: Yeah, so interesting indeed, uh, Andrew. And uh, hey, listen, before I let you go, any comments at all about American education and uh, what's happening right now? Well, I,
2: I was going to talk about that more today, but uh, we're not going to have time. So next week, but I, I would just like to say that we have to get into the essence of what education should be about. Education is a process of creating good citizens. That is what it's about. It is about nothing else but that. If it wasn't about creating good citizens, then it wouldn't be funded by the, by the, by the common citizen. It would be funded by the by the students' parents. So I think we have to have a discussion about whether or not, The public schools of America are accomplishing their primary purpose, and that's to create good citizens. I think the case could be made at this exact moment that certainly that is not happening. And if it's not happening, the public schools, Bob, serve no purpose at all.
1: So well said. Andrew Joppa, again, I want to remind our listeners on Fox Nation, you can see streaming with no commercials, The Miseducation of America with Peter Hegseth. Just a terrific three-part documentary. I just encourage all of our listeners to see The Miseducation of America.
2: One of the most important issues, and one if we don't get a good a good handle on Bob, is is, is America can never be restored, in my opinion.
1: Bob. I agree, Andy. Andy, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk soon, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, we're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Or of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees.
0: Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you. Uh, By the way, uh, tomorrow we've got great guests coming on the show. We're going to have a visit with Keith Flaw, the co founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Michael Cannon is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Seton Motley, the founder and president of less government, and Bill Barnett, former mayor of Naples, always has interesting things to say about what's happening here locally on the Paradise Coast. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>